Well, good morning, Hope Covenant Church. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, my wife and I have been looking forward to this for several weeks now, so it's good to finally be here and uh, to open up the Word of God. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, and I'd like to begin by looking at a couple pictures of uh, Mary. So uh, this first one here, this is the original Madonna, not the Queen of Pop, but the mother of Jesus. And uh, this picture I took a couple years ago when I was in Israel, and it was a prayer station that was inside a church. The next picture here is uh, the famous Virgin Mary grilled cheese sandwich. Um, I'm not sure if you remember this, but about seven or eight years ago, uh, this lady looked down at her grilled cheese sandwich, and the Virgin Mary was staring back at her. And uh, she ended up selling her sandwich for $28,000. So it's a good sandwich to have. The next picture is um, probably one many of us have seen. It's a very common Christmas card. You have the Caucasian Mary holding uh, Jesus in one hand and lamb, I guess, in the other. And next we have um, a car statue at of the Virgin Mary. She's um, she's buckled up in the back seat here, obeying, uh, obeying the law, uh, providing for us a very good example. Uh, make sure you buckle up. And finally, um, we have something that's extremely popular in Kentucky, where my wife and I now reside. And this is uh, lawn art, nativity uh, lawn art with Mary and Joseph praying. Um, and there you go. So the one thing I want us to see here is that in our culture, uh, the Virgin Mary is a very popular icon, isn't she? She's somebody that we see in Christmas cards, in paintings, in stained glass windows, and, and even in lawn art. And I think sometimes we get so familiar with her that she becomes sentimentalized. She gets turned into this soft, cozy, and cuddly holiday icon, kind of like Miss Claus. I remember when I was growing up in church, I went to a Protestant church, and uh, it was almost like we had an allergic reaction to Mary. You know, like we didn't want to sound too Catholic um, around Christmas time. So we'd almost kind of fast forward to the the nativity scene um, a few chapters later. Instead of really honing in on Mary. But this morning, I'd like us to take a fresh look at Mary. Because in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, in Matthew as well, Mary's presented to us as the first disciple. As the first flesh and blood disciple of Jesus Christ. And as one of the early Christians that we find in Acts 1. So this morning, I think we should give Mary an upgrade. And to consider how we could cultivate a Mary-like heart at Christmas time. So our sermon text today is going to come out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. If you don't, uh, or if you just don't want to, the text will be on the screen above. This is the famous Annunciation passage um, where the birth of Jesus is foretold by the angel Gabriel um, to Mary. Luke writes, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. 
How will this be, asked Mary, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me according to your word. And the angel left her. First, Christmas is a time for us to cultivate a humble heart. The Gallup Research Organization, who um, does a lot of polling, conducted a poll in 1950 where they asked high school seniors, do you think you're a very important person? And in 1950, 12% of the high school seniors said yes. They asked the same question in 2005, and it wasn't 12%, it was 80%. You see, we, we live in a culture where we're sort of impressed with ourselves, aren't we? We think we're, we think we're something special. We tell our children that they're at the center of the world, and then they grow up and they believe us. Uh, Time magazine recently conducted a poll where they asked people, are you in the top 1% of earners in the country? And 19% of people said they were in the top 1% of earners. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're very proud people. You know, we, um, we, we have this, there's been a real rise in ego, especially, I think, over the past several decades. And the reason for this, I think, is because there's been a real loss of humility in our culture, hasn't there? There's been a real loss of um, a sense of our own sinfulness, of a sense of our own weakness. And of course, this, hasn't, this isn't exclusive to our generation or to, to, our, to 2011. This humility problem was something that people wrestled with in 1950 and it was something people wrestled with in the first century when this story was told. In the first century, uh, humility was mainly associated with the lower classes, with the servants and the slaves. And it wasn't something that was sought after by the rich and famous. But you see, the person that we meet in this story, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a humble person. Imagine with me for a second that you're on a road trip and uh, you're on a long stretch of country highway. And all of a sudden you realize that you're running low on gas. So you need to fill up. So you get off at the next off ramp. And it's a small town that's maybe not even on the map. And you drive a couple miles until you finally arrive at this old uh, rink-a-dink gas station, you pull out, you turn off your ignition, and you walk inside. And when you walk inside, behind the counter is a young teenage girl. She's awkwardly dressed. She speaks kind of funny. You can tell she hasn't, um, you know, watched MTV too often or anything like that. This girl um, is poor. She makes minimum wage and works long hours. She'll probably never travel much. She'll never be a corporate CEO. She'll never run for Congress or be a doctor or a lawyer. You see, this girl, in the world's eyes, is a nobody girl from a nowhere town. But as she rings you up, her face lights up with a smile. She's friendly. She jokes with you. She has soft eyes and a kind heart. She is humble. You see, this is the person that we meet in Luke 1. This is Mary. She was only 13 years old when the angel Gabriel came to her. She was poor. She was illiterate. She was overtaxed by the Roman government. She was a woman in a day and age when women were largely marginalized. They weren't trusted. They were looked down upon. And Mary had to deal with all of this stuff. And in the world's eyes, she was a nobody from a nowhere town. But the amazing thing is that this is who God chooses to give birth to the Savior and Lord of the universe. This is who God chooses to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah who will bring peace and mercy to all people, who will fix all wrongs, who will heal the world. It's this nobody girl from a nowhere town. 
You know, if it was you or me, we probably would pick someone else, wouldn't we? Maybe we would pick a queen or a princess. You know, somewhere where Jesus could be born, you know, with all the fanfare that he deserves. You know, where, where we could have Scott, you know, rocking out in the background and fireworks going up and dancing in the street. You know, a, a true celebration. You know, that's what we'd be looking for. But this isn't what God does, does he? God surprises us sometimes. The thing we need to realize about God, especially in the Gospels, is that oftentimes he picks the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed to work with. And I think one of the reasons for this is because when our backs are up against the wall, we have nowhere else to turn. We tend to be more vulnerable, don't we? We tend to be less self-sufficient. We tend to be more open to the grace, mercy, and love of God. And so God comes to the needy. He comes to people who aren't perfect. He comes to people who admit their brokenness and weakness. He comes to people like Mary. If you look at Luke 1, 47, Mary's singing this song of praise to God. And she says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. And pay attention to this next part. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. God has given grace to Mary, and Mary has responded to that grace with spiritual humility. And God has recognized this. And God honors her for this. And God honors us for this. And God wants each one of us to cultivate a humble heart like Mary had. A couple years ago, I was at work. I work in a restaurant in Louisville. And uh, one of my friends, actually, and I, she called me to the carpet um, on a bunch of shortcuts that I was taking in front of the entire staff completely shamed me. And, uh, you, you know, it, you know, my pride just went through the floor and, you know, I got really angry and, you know, I, I said, so, I snapped back at her and said something mean and just kind of took off the other way. And we just, you know, we had this big blow up and I remember coming home that night and sitting down to spend time with the Lord. And all of a sudden it was just like this heavy cloud just dropped down on me and the Holy Spirit was convicting me of the pride in my heart that I had been arrogant with the people I work with, that I had been sarcastic with my own wife and some of my best friends. And so I decided to become humble. I want to be a humble person. But here's the strange thing. As I tried to be humble, I began to see the pride in other people's heart even more. And I began to believe, um, I began to take pride in the fact that I was humble and this person wasn't. You know what I mean? So I think the bottom line here, the key here, is that the way to cultivate humility isn't to try to be a humble person, because then you're fixing the attention back on yourself. C.S. Lewis once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. See, humility is not about having low self-esteem. It's not about beating yourself up. It's not about forgetting that you were made in the image of God and are loved by God. It's about not being self-preoccupied. It means not focusing all your attention on your status, achievements, and success, but allowing those things to take a back seat as you serve, glorify, and enjoy God and serve your neighbor. When that happens, humility is naturally cultivated in our hearts. Now, in addition to cultivating a humble heart, this Christmas, God wants us to cultivate thoughtful hearts. Look back at the text with me, if you would. In verse 28, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And how does Mary respond? Does she immediately say, I am the Lord's servant. Let's do this. No, she doesn't do that. Luke writes that she says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. 
See, Mary's not some shallow, flighty girl that just believes anything she's told. It says that she wonders here, that she ponders, that she considers. In the original language, this this word means to furiously analyze, to wrestle with, um, to ask questions, to doubt. This is part of the process of faith. This is part of the process of belief. This is part of the process of Mary's heart. She's thinking to herself, there's an angel in front of me. Am I hallucinating? Did I have something funny uh, for, for breakfast this morning? Um, am I dreaming? What's going on? You know, and so she's, she's kind of going through the cycle in her head. You know, and then she realizes this is an angel and he's telling me that I'm highly favored. You know, this is unusual. And so Mary has a thought process where she actually considers the word of God, where she ponders it, where she reflects it. Where she meditates on what the word of God meant for her and would require of her. Do we do this in our own life? I think sometimes this is something that's very difficult for us. Um, There was a poet named Robert Southey um, from about 200 years ago. And one day he was talking to this old Quaker lady. And uh, he was was kind of bragging a little bit, talking himself up, um, telling her about what a master multitasker he was. And, uh, you know, he was telling her about how um, when he works in a field, he eats his breakfast. And when he gets dressed, he writes poems. And, he le- and how he learns Portuguese grammar as he washes his clothes until eventually he fills up his entire day with all of these different things. And it's just overflowing to the brim with, with uh, productivity. And this old Quaker lady looked at him and said in a soft voice, and when do you have time to think? You know, I think that's an excellent question for us. When do we really have time in the midst of our chaotic life to just stop, be still, freeze, and think about what the Word of God means for us? I think this is particularly important in the month of December. As Christmas is approaching, life just gets chaotic, doesn't it? It gets hectic. We have so many things going on. We're buying Christmas gifts for people. Maybe we're traveling. We're seeing family. We're decorating the house. And the temptation is to get so wrapped up in these good things that we screen out Jesus Christ. That we screen out the reason for the season. That Christmas just kind of comes and goes without much serious reflection and thought about what it means about what God wants from us in response to the grace he has given us in Jesus Christ. And so I think we need to learn to hit the pause button sometimes, to carve time out of our schedule to really contemplate what the word of God means for us, which is something that is also really hard. Um, There's this girl I work with um, back in Louisville, and uh, she is a recovering drug addict. She's in a halfway house right now, and she accepted Christ a couple uh, weeks ago. I was talking to her just the other day, and you know, she's really zealous. She's, she, has, she has a mentor. She's practicing all these spiritual disciplines. And this particular day, she um, had learned the discipline of meditation. Uh, the discipline of meditation. This isn't the Eastern meditation where you, you know, kind of empty your mind and you know, chant some words. This is, the, this is Christian meditation where you fill your mind with the Word of God and actually reflect and contemplate what it means for you. And so she was practicing this discipline, and she said, you know what, Brandon, this is just so weird. It's so bizarre. How do you Christians do this? You know, she said, you know, whenever I'm alone, I'm always used to having the iPod on, having music going, or having the TV blaring in the background. She said, silence makes me uncomfortable. I get bored. You know, I think that's a common problem for many of us. We're used to living in a fast-paced world where we're multitasking all the time, and this makes us extremely impatient. 
You know, we hate for we hate commercials. We hate waiting too long for a page to load on the Internet. We want things now. And we also become uncomfortable with silence. But I think if we're going to ponder what the word of God means for us, like Mary did, it means taking time out of our busy lives to try to internalize the word of God, to personalize it, to ask ourselves, what does this mean for me personally? To leave our study notes and commentaries and all that stuff to the side and just to read maybe a few verses, maybe one chapter, and just to really zero in and hone in and pay attention to the word of God. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once said, just as you do not analyze the words of someone you love, but accept them as if they were said to you, accept the words of scripture, ponder it in your heart as Mary did. That is all that is meditation. Last week, there was one day when I was having a really bad day. Um, I was clipping Chloe, uh, my four month year old's nails, and I took off a chunk of skin and she wasn't too happy about that. Um, my older daughter, Adeline, um, for some reason wanted to punch and kick me all day. I don't know if she was, you know, watching Jack Bauer with me in the afternoon or something, but it was, it was a really bad day. There's lots of things going on. And, you know, I got to the end of the day and I sat down to spend time with the Lord and, you know, my gas tank was on E. I was just completely empty, I had nothing left. And I opened up to Psalm 29 where David is talking about how there's this God at the center of the universe that's enthroned above all of it, that's running the show, that is powerful enough to deal with our problems and has given strength to his people. It was like all of a sudden I had one of those moments where I was just like, ah, yes, this is what I need. I need to know that there is somebody in control of all this. I need to know that there's a throne on the center of the universe and I'm not on it. I don't have that responsibility. Do we have these kind of moments in our lives? It might not be every week, you know, there's going to be certain times where we, uh, you know, meditate on the word of God and it's boring or we get distracted. You know, this is normal. But like I told this, this girl that I worked with, we need to stick with it. We need to stick with it. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to have times when he could work in our lives. So that when we look back over our journals, if that's something we do, we could see certain highlights where the Lord has been faithful, where the Lord has moved and worked in our lives. And the goal of these sacred moments, the goal of Christian meditation, is to stir in us a desire to serve God. If you look back at our story, there's this exciting conversation going on between uh, the angel Gabriel and Mary. They're kind of going back and forth, and the angel begins to tell her um, in verse 30 that she's going to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah, who's going to sit on the throne forever. You know, this was the promised Messiah who would fix all wrongs, who would make all things right, who would offer forgiveness and mercy and love to all people. And finally, this day had arrived. And how does Mary respond? She says in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? See, Mary paid attention in science class. She knows where babies come from and she knows there's no way that she could have a baby, right? She's a virgin. How can this be? Well, the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. A few verses later, she says, for nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for the God that created the universe out of nothing. Nothing is impossible for God that led Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. Nothing is impossible for God that raises the dead. And how does Mary respond? She, She could have said, thanks, but no thanks. 
You're just asking too much. She could have pressed for more information and demanded certainty. But she doesn't do that, does she? She says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. In other words, she was willing and available to do what God asked. No matter what the cost, she was all in. And I think that's exactly what God wants from you and I during this Christmas season. He wants us to move all in. He wants us to be willing and available to take risks for him, to share our faith for him, to pursue godliness and take steps closer to Jesus Christ. The difficulty is a lot of times, a lot of us feel underqualified, don't we? We don't think we have the resume or the credentials to be a servant of the living God. Maybe we say to ourselves, I can't share my faith with my family at Christmas. They know all my faults. They can just lob those back at me. You know, we we make up these excuses, but what this story reminds us is that God isn't concerned with qualifications and credentials, that he is in the business of using broken and imperfect people, humble people like you and I to accomplish his work. And this is because he is a God of grace. Do you believe that today? D.L. Moody was born in 1837 in Northfield, Massachusetts. And uh, when he was born, when he was around six or seven years old, his dad died praying on his knees. And his mom had to raise nine children all by herself. When Moody was in his early teens, he had to work just to put food on his plate. When he was 17, he moved to Boston to work at his uncle's shoe store. And while he was in Boston, his uncle made him go to church and Moody got saved. He moved to Chicago the next year to pursue his dream of making $100,000 selling shoes. And he was doing really well until something strange happened. See, Moody began to start these Sunday school classes. He began to work with poor, illiterate, immigrant children in the inner city. People that were you know, passed over in that day and age. And soon his classes grew and grew and grew until there were over 650 people in Moody's Sunday school classes. And so eventually Moody started a church, Moody Bible Church, that is still there today. Eventually he started evangelizing the United Kingdom, the United States. It's estimated that Moody preached over 100 million people without radio or television. He's probably the greatest evangelist of the 1900s. And finally, near the end of his life, he started establishing schools for women who wanted to pursue ministry, for poor people, um, for immigrants, for people that didn't have money. He had a heart for this. And one of the schools that he started was Moody Bible Institute. That's where I went to college um, for my undergraduate degree. Can you believe that? Here's a man who has absolutely nothing. He's born into poverty. He only has a fifth grade education and zero theological training. And God uses him to do amazing things, all because he was willing and available, like Mary, to be used by God. See, this is what God is after. He is after using ordinary people like you and me to do extraordinary things like Moody and Mary. Moody once said, if this world is going to be reached, I'm convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. And that's many of us. But if we're going to have this kind of servant heart, if we're going to take risks, and surrender our life, it takes a radical trust in God. Look with me at verse 45 in Luke 1. Elizabeth says of Mary, Blessed is she who has believed the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. See, Mary believed God. 
And so she trusted God with all of it. She trusted God with her relationship with Joseph. She trusted God with uh, the physical anguish of her life. She trusted God with her reputation in town when everybody would make fun of her because they thought she either slept with Joseph or cheated on him. She trusted God with that. She trusted God with the anguish of her own soul because she believed God and she followed him in trusting obedience because she knew deep down in her bones that God does what he says, that he is a trustworthy God that comes through with his promises, as these Advent candles over here remind us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful to do what he says, and he, and he has invited you into partnership with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, when Kelly and I first got married uh, about five years ago, um, we, we had just moved to Louisville. We we're still trying to find jobs. It was kind of a rocky, difficult time for us. And uh, one day, Kelly started to have some heart problems. And uh, she came home. I remember her telling me that it felt like someone was sticking a knife into her heart. And uh, there would be times throughout the day when her heart would skip a beat. And so it was this very, you know, scary time. We ended up going to see some heart doctors, some leading heart doctors in Los Angeles. Uh, we saw two or three of them. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Saw a couple in Louisville. Uh, same thing. I remember one night I was sitting in my office, and I got news um, from one doctor uh, that there's a good chance that Kelly should never have children because it would place too much stress on her heart. Her heart couldn't handle that. It, just, it wasn't quite healthy enough. And I remember sitting on my office floor and just weeping. You know, we're in this new city. We're you know, still trying to figure things out. And my wife was having these excruciating episodes of pain. And I can do nothing about it. And on top of that, my lifelong dream was to have children, was to be a father. And there was a chance that was never going to be happen. And I remember as I was praying out and crying out to the Lord, the Lord said to me, he said, Brandon, trust me, trust me, trust me. You can trust me. See, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it becomes difficult. God doesn't always heal our lives according to our timetables, does he? Um, Israel had to wait 2,000 years for the Messiah to come. 2,000 years of pain and waiting, of exile. The church has had to wait 2,000 years for Jesus Christ to come again. And many of us have had to wait years and years and years for our physical sufferings to end. For broken relationships to be restored. For addictions to be overcome. And if you're in one of those situations... You know how hard it could be. Maybe you know in your heart that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but you look around and all you see is chaos. Maybe you know that God is the mighty God, but sometimes he just doesn't seem to show up. Maybe other times you know that he's the wonderful counselor, but you just can't quite hear his voice. Well, it's precisely in those times that God is saying to you today, trust me. Because like the Christmas story reminds us, God will eventually fulfill his promises. He will eventually heal the hurt and aching in our own heart in his timing. Maybe that's next week. Maybe it's two years. Maybe it's in the new creation. But eventually, God will do what he says because he is trustworthy. And so this Christmas, you can trust him. You can trust him with your past. You can trust him with your present. You can trust him with your future. You could trust him with your hopes. You could trust him with your dreams. You could trust him with your sins. You could trust him with your checkbook and your awkward relationships and your family problems. You can trust this Jesus because God has sent him into the world to make all things new. 
Is there any way today that you are operating in a way that is not trusting Jesus? That is not serving the Lord out of thoughtfulness, humility, and service. If so, God is saying to you today, trust me, trust me, trust me. A child has been born and everything is going to be okay. If I asked one of your coworkers or one of your close friends, what are the four words they would use to describe you, what would they say? The four words to describe Mary are humility, thoughtfulness, service, and trust. This is the real flesh and blood Mary. This is the Mary that we have in our homes and nativity scenes. This is the Mary that we see in stained glass windows and lawn art and Christmas cards. And this Christmas, my prayer is that as we look at Mary, we would also cultivate Mary-like hearts. That we would say to the Lord and respond to the grace that he has poured out on us, I am the Lord's servant, let's do this. Are you willing to say that this morning? The other beauty about Mary's life is she's a pointer to someone greater, to the supreme example of humility, thoughtfulness, service, and trust, to Jesus Christ, who humbled himself on a cross and was crucified for our sins, who trusted God even when things didn't make sense in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, not my will, but your will be done. This is the Savior that Mary points us to. The person who loves us infinitely more than we could ever understand. Maybe there's some people in this room this morning who have never trusted in Jesus Christ. Who have never believed in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Who have never joyfully become his servant. And experienced a new life, a new hope that Christ offers to each and every one of us. If that's you, I would invite you today talk to Pastor Dwayne, to talk to one of the elders and see how you could surrender your life to Christ and have everything turned upside down. How you could confess the sin of your self-centeredness and trust and believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray during this Christmas season when things are so hectic and so chaotic that we would not lose track of what happened 2,000 years ago, when you sent your Son into the world to overcome evil, sin, death, and and Satan. Heavenly Father, may we reflect on that this Christmas. May we cultivate Mary-like hearts, hearts of humility, thoughtfulness, service, and trust. I pray that you would help us to flesh this out and live this out this week and this Christmas. We pray all this in the sweet name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.